Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Season 3, where we collaborate with our good friends at A Brother's Creed for some more conversation and commentary. This time we'll look into the theme of underdogs, and each share an inspiring story about overcoming the greatest of odds. Welcome to Part 1. So first we got uh, Jamie's up. Jamie, you want to give any right. any background to your story, or let's see. Uh so this is this is a sport I'm passionate about, which is uh, soccer, specifically uh, English soccer. So that's all I'll say, and yeah, let's just get into it. All, all right, right, here we go. The final whistle blew, and a familiar chorus of boos drifted down from the stands. The players trudged off the pitch, heads down and dejected. They were now winless in eight straight games and had managed just four wins all season. Relegation from the Premier League was now more than a possibility. It was almost a certainty. It would take every ounce of effort from the players and every ounce of support from the fans to stay up now. No one could have even dreamt it at this moment, but they wouldn't just stay in England's most coveted league just 14 months later, they would make history in the Premier League and prove all their doubters wrong in the process. This is a tale about one of the greatest underdog stories in sports history. The story of Leicester City making the impossible a reality during the 2015 season. First, a little history about Leicester City Football Club. Leicester City, first known as Leicester Foss, were founded in 1884. They are nicknamed the Foxes due to the Leicester area of England being widely considered the birthplace of sport fox hunting. They became Leicester City after World War I and achieved some success winning the English League Cup three times in 64, 97 and 2000. The late 70s to early 90s were years of ups and downs struggling to cement a place in England's top division. Between 1999 and 2000, they achieved a mainstay in the top flight premiership with four successive top 10 finishes. But in October 2002, the club went into administration, having racked up over £30 million in debt. They fought their way through the championship, England's second tier, throughout the 2000s, and finally achieved a promotion back to the top tier of the English Football League in 2014. Leicester fans felt they were back where they belonged, back amongst the famous English clubs like Manchester United, Liverpool and Chelsea. They even started quite well, sitting in the top seven partway through the season. But then a dismal run of form left them in serious trouble of tumbling back into the lower divisions. They went winless in eight straight games, earning just two points out of 24. But the players dug in. On April 3rd, 2015, they were bottom of the league with just 15 points. The bottom three teams in the Premier League are relegated at the end of the season, and they find themselves a full seven points from safety with just nine games remaining. Then began what became known as the Great Escape. On October 4th, they edged past West Ham United 2-1, with an 86th minute winner from Andy King. A week later, they pulled off another late win against fellow relegation fighters West Bromwich Albion, thanks to a stoppage time winner from Jamie Vardy. A comfortable win against Welsh side Swansea followed, 
Yes, there are Welsh teams in the English leagues. On April 25th, they faced now bottom side Burnley at Turf Moor. Burnley were awarded a second half penalty kick, but when Matthew Taylor's spot kick rebounded off the post, Leicester hit Burnley on the counter-attack and the ever-reliable Jamie Vardy bundled the ball in for a fourth straight win. Leicester were now out of the bottom three. They suffered a 3-1 home defeat to Chelsea at the end of April, a game that awarded Chelsea the Premier League title. But at the start of May, the Foxes made it wins 5 and 6 out of 7, with comfortable wins over Newcastle and Southampton. I don't know why it's changed for us, said Nigel Peterson, the Leicester manager. They played out a nervy draw at Sunderland on May 16th, but with fellow relegation battlers Hull City failing to win, Leicester were now mathematically safe from relegation, with a game to spare. The following week they hammered already relegated side Queen's Park Rangers 5-1 at the King Park Stadium, and finished the season a respectable 14th. Things were looking up for the Foxes, but as they changed managers for the 2015-2016 season, dumping Peterson for the experienced Italian Claudio Ranieri, they could have scarcely imagined just how good things were about to get. Claudio Ranieri had previously managed the London club Chelsea. Ranieri had just been sacked as manager of the Greek national team after their embarrassing defeat to the Faroe Islands, a country of less than 50,000 people. And as he took on the managerial role at Leicester, most expected another year of struggle for the team. The new boss set a goal of 40 points for the season, generally considered enough to avoid the drop. To put it mildly, Leicester City were minnows in the English Premier League and after barely making it through the season before, and with a new manager coming in, most expected them to flounder. Since the English top tier was christened the Premier League in 1992, just five teams had managed to win the championship come 2015. Outside of the 95 winners Blackburn Rovers, the other four were some of the biggest clubs in the world and were financial juggernauts. Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea and Manchester City. In the history of the Premier League, the winners had never finished below third the season before winning at all. Leicester had finished 14th in 2015, and had a payroll of about a fourth of that of Chelsea's. But the Foxes had a brilliant start to the season, winning three and drawing three out of the first six. Their star goalscorer Jamie Vardy was a sensation. Vardy was something of an underdog on his own. He had been playing for Fleetwood Town in the fifth tier of English football in 2012 and he was now a top scorer in the biggest league of them all, just three years later. His goal scoring, leadership and resolve forged over many years of toiling his way to the top, made him the perfect man to lead the Foxes on a most improbable run of form. By mid-October they had lost just one of their first nine games, but had yet to keep a clean sheet, so Vernieri seeking to motivate the team, told him that he would buy them all pizza if they kept a clean sheet in their next match. Even though many of the players earned lavish wages, it worked a treat, and on the 24th they kept their first clean sheet of the season with a 1-0 win against Crystal Palace. They incredibly led the league going into November, to the shock of every football fan in the country. Vardy scored in his 11th straight match on November 28th, breaking the Premier League record. But the 1-1 draw against Manchester United meant they slipped to second on goal difference. Games against Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester City loomed in December, and most thought the fairy tale was going to turn into a nightmare before Christmas. But again Leicester proved their doubters wrong, 
A win against Chelsea and a draw against Manchester City ensured the Foxes sat top of the pile at the turn of the new year. By the end of January, Leicester fans began to quietly whisper the word League Championship with all sincerity. They took a trip to the Etihad Stadium on February 6th to play a second place Manchester City. With a three point lead, pundits predicted a tentative defensive display from Leicester. But they had been wrong from the get go and Ranieri's men made them look like fools once again, scoring after three minutes and running out comfortable 3-1 winners. With take, Hooth with the head, it's three! Sensational! They're not just beating the richest club in the land, they're ripping them up on their own patch! The Foxes just kept winning throughout February and March, and by April 10th they had kept six clean sheets out of seven. By this point, the two Manchester clubs had fallen off the title race wagon, slipping over a dozen points behind. Leicester had a fairly comfortable seven-point lead over fellow London sides Tottenham and Arsenal, with six games to go. On April 24th, they thumped Swansea City 4-0 at the King Parr Stadium, and a day later Tottenham could only manage a draw. This meant they only needed three more points to secure the most unlikely achievement in the league's history. On the 1st of May, they went up to Old Trafford, the home of the 13-time Premier League winners Manchester United. They played well, but could only manage a draw. All eyes now turned to the Monday night matchup at Stamford Bridge Stadium between Chelsea and Tottenham. Chelsea themselves were long out of the title hunt, but they knew a winner draw from them would deny their bitter rivals Tottenham a chance at the league championship. The match was a brutal affair. Commentators afterwards called it the Battle of Stamford Bridge, a clever reference to an actual battle that took place in 1066 between English and Norwegian armies. The match didn't quite live up to the 8,000 plus estimated casualties of this battle, but there were an incredible 12 yellow cards in the match, multiple full-scale melees throughout the match, and Spurs player Moussa Dembele later received a six-match ban for violent conduct. Spurs took an early 2-0 lead, but lost their way in the second half, leading to a now famous goal from Chelsea Tally's man, Eden Hazard. Which would hint if you didn't know otherwise that they were chasing the title. Costa, away from Alderweireld, Diego Costa, Eden Hazard! Glorious goal! Leicester's goal! Leicester City are seven minutes away from being champions of England! With the final whistle blowing and the match ending 2-2, Leicester had an unassailable lead and they were champions with three matches to spare. Leicester City, tiny Leicester City, had just won the Premier League. The story of Leicester City is a true underdog story. They literally went from the third tier of English football in 2009 to the very top of the Premier League just seven years later. They did it with style, they did it with teamwork, and they did it against all the odds and predictions from the pundits. At the beginning of the season, Leicester were given 5,000 to 1 odds to win the league by the bookmakers. To put that into perspective, the worst odds ever given to an NFL team to win the Super Bowl was 200 to 1. It was estimated that their championship cost bookies in the UK over $20 million. Famed opera singer Andre Bocelli was invited to Leicester's final match of the season, where they were awarded their trophy, 
and he serenaded the team for accomplishing something truly historic. Oh man, what a crazy, what a crazy story! I think explaining the odds at the end just really put it into perspective how yeah. shocking that was. Wish I had yeah, money there, on that game. <laughs> there was a a Lester fan who put five pounds uh, on the on his team at the beginning of the season, and he got I think twenty twenty five thousand pounds <laughs> from that. Wow! Oh my gosh. I think he bought a lot of drinks that night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he spent it all in one night, probably. Yeah. yeah. And until recently, I didn't really understand that the teams could be relegated from the league. I mean, yeah. it's like if you're yeah. if you're in the and for those listeners that don't completely understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong in this too, but if you're at like the bottom of your specific league, one of the worst teams, and you can get relegated, which is basically just demoted to the the next tier of teams, so the next sub tier yeah, right. of teams. And then, you know, I guess you said that they went, they got relegated again to a third tier potentially. And then kind of at the end of the season, you could be promoted back to the higher teams or higher leagues if you're better. And they made it all the way back up to the top of the first right. premier league, which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, some, some teams, you know, they go down and they just lose, you know, financial backing and they just go all the way down all the way down and you never hear from them again so really? it really is like that it's it's not like you know you think american sports nfl you, you know if you finish winless you're still in the league the next year but that's not the case otherwise the eagles would be totally gone <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you did a good job of like showing that it wasn't it wasn't just the team. It was also the individuals yeah, the too. too. So it was, it was very much them as well as the team. So you did a good job of making, highlighting that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like yeah. I, I really enjoyed the, the goal at the end, the, the commentary for the goal at the end uh, from the Chelsea player. Cause I'm, I'm a Chelsea fan. I'm a big Chelsea fan for a long time. And I remember watching that game and I really wanted Leicester to win. Cause it was just so, you know, everyone loves an underdog and, um everyone wanted them to win except for you know obviously that other team yeah um and yeah it was just a great game just a a really really dirty game you know everyone was just getting stuck in and there's 12 yellow cards somehow there was no red cards but <laughs> and, and yeah, did it, was, you, it was great to watch did you say that like points wise they still had three more games to play in the season but points wise yeah, they were the yeah. champions and so it's like yeah, they even if they lost even if, even if they, they lost, lost those three lost other three. games and you know they 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 would win the whole the whole champion yep. or the whole championship which is kind of cool so I like what you said about the pizza thing where they, they just, the guy said, if everybody wins us tonight, we're going to get you a pizza. What's a, what's a clean, a, a clean card or a clean game? Is that just like clean, a clean sheet? A clean That's sheet. A, so no, the other team doesn't score. Oh, okay. So oh, it's okay. like a, yeah. Shut uh, out. Shut out. Shut out. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I, I like what you said. After Translation. The pizza. I like what you said after the pizza thing. It worked a treat. I think is what you said. <laughs> I like that saying. I'm going to start using that. Yeah. I've heard it worked a charm, but I've never heard it worked a treat before. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> It sounds very English to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a photo of the players, and they, they actually went to a pizza making. You know, it went into the kitchen, and, oh, and cool. they're like throwing dough in the air, and they just had fun with it. So that's cool. Yeah, even though they probably made millions of dollars anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Well, good, these good, guys, good these guys were making these these guys weren't making that much money, right? I mean, they were making some money. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a couple players that were yeah. making pretty good money, but. Most of them were making, you know, not not that much more more than you know the average Joe, but but not you know millions. So oh, yeah, cool. 
That's awesome. That's, cool. that's a good story. Thanks for sharing that with us, man. I I, I, I had no idea. You know, I I don't follow. follow uh, and that was recent too. I mean, that was just you know in the past yeah. several years. I mean, that's that's cool. And the the part at the end, um, Andrea Bocelli actually did come to their stadium when they got their trophy, and and he sang a couple of songs, and it was pretty cool. So yeah, you cool. should should check it out on YouTube. It's they've got a video of it. It's pretty oh, cool. Oh yeah, we'll have to do that. Cool. That's awesome. That's why, that's why I love doing this because we, we all have different perspectives and like our, our background is, is very similar, but most of the stuff that I've heard of, Ethan's heard of and vice versa. But like <laughs> you guys come from a, like a different pool and so it's great to hear different stuff. So it's yeah. awesome. The joy of collaborating. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So this next story, uh, this next story is mine. Um, this is more of a, a war story. Uh, well, so we'll just, we'll just go. I'm not going to spoil it. So we'll just go ahead and get into it. All right. Here we go. As the sirens whined and the bombs fell in the town of Helsinki, Finland, the people huddled into their shelters, wondering why is this happening to us? The Winter War Finland had declared itself neutral at the beginning of World War II, but the Soviet Union made demands that Finland surrendered to them substantial border territories as a buffer against German invasion. Finland refused. The Red Army did not like the resistance and came knocking with over a half a million soldiers. On November 30th, 1939, the Soviet Union bombed the capital of Finland, killing hundreds of citizens and destroying over 50 buildings. Upon international criticism, the Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov stated that the Soviet Air Force was not bombing Finnish cities, but rather dropping humanitarian aid to the starving Finnish population. Sarcastically, the Finns called these Russian bombs Molotov breadbaskets. The Soviets had over half a million men to Finland's 150,000, which included nine units of reserve civilians. Russia had 3,800 aircrafts to Finland's 114, 4,000 tanks to 32 obsolete tanks. The Finns had only 60 days of ammunition, shells, and fuel left in reserves when they were attacked. The Soviet Union did not expect resistance and anticipated that the fight would be over in a few weeks. They fully intended to conquer all of Finland, a weak, sparsely populated, isolated nation. Or so they thought. First off, Finland was led by Karl Mannerheim, a brilliant strategist, and Simo Haya, history's most deadly sniper, 
nicknamed the White Death by the Red Army and credited with over 500 kills. The Finns leveraged experienced leadership, their homeland's harsh conditions, and rugged geography in the struggle for their national survival. That close to the Arctic Circle, the days are short and the nights long. Temperatures often reach negative 45 degrees Fahrenheit with feet of snow. Though vastly outgunned and outnumbered, these strengths combined with guerrilla tactics gave them a fighting chance. Huddled around the fire, in deep snow, the dark night surrounding them, Soviet soldiers struggled to stay warm in the sub-zero temperatures, when all of a sudden they hear something in the dead silence of the woods. Out of the black tree line fly men on skis dressed in all white. They scramble to their guns, shouting and confused, but are quickly gunned down. The enemy has gone into the darkness as quickly as they came. Finnish troops were highly experienced skiers and possessed a degree of stealth and mobility that Soviet soldiers could not match. Silently gliding out of the trees, Finnish ski troopers surprised, evaded, and harassed their ruthless opponents. The Finns would wait in the trees in the mountains for a row of enemy tanks to come roaring up the snow-piled paths. They would ski down quickly, passing the tanks and stick logs or crowbars in their tracks, immobilizing them and the rest of the caravan. Once reinforcements arrived and the tanks were emptied, the Finns would barrage the enemy with machine gun fire from up high, and then disappear into the woods. As some sort of ironic payback to Minister Molotov's breadbasket bombs that were dropped on their capital, the Finns created the Molotov cocktail. Glass bottles filled with flammable liquid and a fuse. They would throw them against the enemy tanks to break and burst into flames. The Finns were used to and prepared for the bitter cold but they were not nearly as equipped as the Russians. The ammo shortage was so severe that Finnish soldiers had to maintain their own ammunition supplies by looting the bodies of dead Soviet soldiers. The kill ratios and casualty rates are perhaps some of the starkest in modern warfare. Jokingly, the Finns would say about the Russians, they are so many and our country is so small where will we find room to bury them all? While Finland is estimated to have lost approximately 25,000 soldiers during the Soviet offense, the invaders' fatality had been over 200,000, not counting the hundreds of thousands more wounded or crippled by frostbite. Its citizen army had so severely wounded the Soviet bear 
that Finland preserved its independence and was spared from the grim fate of Russian tyranny. The conflict also put a severe dent in the prestige and capabilities of the Russian army that affected it throughout the rest of the war. After three months, the Russians received additional reinforcements. The Finns eventually became exhausted and were overrun. Though they surrendered in the end and had to give up 8% of the borderland, they stayed off a vast force, much greater than their own, that would have taken everything in its path. This is a testament to true patriotism and frozen grit. The fact that free men stood against tyranny, the few stood against the many, and that when the war was over, everyone knew that even a world superpower could bleed. Nice. I, oh, love, I love a good World War II story. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. I. What's funny is that this, the, the war really only, it only lasted three months. I mean, it's like the, the winter war, but it was so many against so few. And they were just like, nope, not in my house. 200,000 people dying in three months. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I, I already had a pretty big respect for Finland, but now it's been catapulted big time. That's, yeah. that's just amazing. It, it was crazy too, because you know, the Finns that they, they were prepared. They had all their, their, their camo. They all had white. Everything was painted white to match with the snow. And the Russians came in and they're all wearing like their, their khaki coats and everything else and their green tanks and everything. And it wasn't until probably the last, uh, like six weeks or no, not even the last, uh, they said the last month of the war, they actually decided that, Hey, maybe we should like paint our tanks white or like maybe we should start wearing white clothes so that they can't see us as well. And, uh, it's just crazy. Well, what's funny is that that's kind of reminiscent of the Battle of Stalingrad, but reversed. Like at the Battle of Stalingrad, the Germans were the one that came in and said, this is going to be done in a matter of weeks. And they were unprepared for the winter, but the Russians knew the winter there. And so they were yeah. also tons of Russians died there, but uh, they were kind of used to that winter and they were able to defend the, the city of Stalingrad Uh you know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I wonder because this was really at the beginning of the war. I wonder if they learned a lot from from this engagement with the Finland or with the Finns, just just on how that kind of that winter uh, that winter fighting went. I wonder if they, they probably learned a lot from from that time. Oh yeah, well, and it's really interesting how you highlight the fact that they used really unorthodox means to get ahead. Yeah, of their the enemy like the i never knew that that's where the molotov cocktail came from but i mean man what an effective weapon right there i mean and just and like you said just painting their stuff wide or going on skis i mean who would ever think to do that in battle but look at how effective it was yeah i mean it allowed it allowed them to get in and get out really without any uh, i mean just quickly i mean you can't chase down somebody on skis whenever you're not wearing skis it's just crazy Reminds me of the Russians nowadays, you know, like even back then they were like, oh, we're, we were giving humanitarian aid. It's like, yeah, right. Nowadays they're like, <laughs> yeah. like all your troops are in Ukraine. It's like, those aren't our troops. They don't have patches on their shoulder. And then like later, like, ah, yes, they were our troops. <laughs> and you're like, we knew this all along, you know. Uh, so, we didn't tell them to go there. I was like, what? We have tanks in Ukraine? I don't know what you're talking about. Do they have patches on their shoulder that say Russia? No, well, they don't have patches. Oh, well, they must not be us. You know, and then it's like, surprise, it was us. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. Whoops. 
Well, so so where so how did you come to know about that story? Um, I I had I had remembered learning about it years ago, um, but I couldn't remember the details. And I I remember just the um, I remember being a similar story to like the three hundred Spartans, right? The people that mm-hmm. that stayed off an entire Persian force, and and so just did some research into it, and I was like, yeah, this is definitely an underdog story that I definitely want to share. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and that's, that's also another interesting thing too, is like, whenever we think of the term underdog, I think a lot of us, we think of sports, but in, as it applies to warfare, I mean, that is a totally apt description, you know, like someone who overcomes the odds to have to gain victory, you know? Yeah. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with leadership too. And, and I mean, this kind of goes back to the, um, to the, the, the soccer story, you know, they, they had new leadership and potentially new coaches or trainers or whatever else. And, and they knew what to do and they had experience and they knew their situation and what their enemy was going to be like. And it wasn't just kind of chaotic. Let's just send as many people as we can and try to, you know, punch through the front door. Um, I think that's one of the things that leadership definitely saved them. But Russia's leadership, it seems like most of the time was just throw more men at it. That's that was the leader. That was the leadership. It's like more men, you know. And then, it, I, I guess I should have picked up on in that way that was the beginning of the war because the Finns were picking up ammo from the Russian soldier, soldiers. It's like, well, if it would have been towards the end of the war, there wouldn't have been much ammo left. <laughs> so, uh, it's. It's also funny, too, that you chose to do a story about Finland, because we recently did a post about um, a major figure in Finnish history who helped. um, He really helped Finland develop a sense of national identity and unity in the late 1800s. So hearing hearing this story is almost like a fulfillment of that. It's like they they already had a huge sense of national unity, it seems. And like they were ready to fight for their country. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it was cool. Yeah, very, I, very cool. Story. I guess moral of the story: don't don't attack a country in winter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think oh, if it would if if it would have been if it would have been the summer, I think it would have been a completely different story. Although I was reading that it was actually beneficial for the tanks because then they didn't get stuck in the mud because everything was just frozen mm-hmm. solid, and so they were able to go across mm-hmm. river or lakes and just frozen everything because it was because uh, it was just everything was frozen. So that's the only benefit, but I'm pretty sure the soldiers would have preferred it the other way around. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, also, cool if you haven't heard, uh, Ethan, we did one one of our um, Halloween stories. Ethan talked about we did we talked about some Halloween war stories, uh, some scary war stories, and Ethan talked about how in uh, Vietnam uh, there was these phantom type ghouls that were in the trees, and so the conspiracy theory is that they poured you know agent orange over all the trees to kill the foliage because and displace these ghouls uh that people the soldiers were seeing and stuff like that so yeah even 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 the natives were scared to sometimes the the military in vietnam contract contracted the natives to be guides through the through the woods and through the jungle and they were like natives were like nope we're not going in there there's something in there that we don't know what it is and uh, oh. so it's crazy. Those are kind of cool stories. You, yeah, you like, the Halloween have episode to to that one. Yeah. Oh yeah, fear tactics worked every time. <laughs> this episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Jamie Adams and Scott Einig, and featured Ethan and Jared Thomas of A Brother's Creed. Thank you for joining us for part one of this bonus episode. Tune in next week for part two, where we explore more inspirational true stories of underdogs.